This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality may be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is the lawyer and author, Jill Wine-Banks. We spoke with her via Zoom in November of 2020 about her newest book, The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President by publisher Henry Holt and Company. The now-celebrated and respected lawyer Jill Wine-Banks was a young prosecutor and only woman on the team during the Nixon impeachment hearings. In The Watergate Girl, she tells how she elicited this testimony and exchange from the president's secretary about the missing audio from the famous tape recordings. So I reached for the phone, and instead of turning off the machine by pressing stop, I accidentally hit record. And I kept my foot on the pedal under the desk because otherwise it wouldn't keep rotating and therefore there'd be no erasure. Now that sounded incredible to me. So I said, could you demonstrate? And before she even reached, her foot came off the pedal and you could see the tape machine stop. Everyone looking at it knew she could not have stayed in that position for 18 and a half minutes. And from that famous revelation, she moved along as a trailblazer throughout her career in law at the U.S. Army, for the state of Illinois, and the American Bar Association. The memoir of the status quo-breaking jurist, writer Jill Wine-Banks, is our guest on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. A side note and another reminder for context, this conversation was recorded on November 6, 2020, which was just a few days after the 2020 presidential election. It was also after the first impeachment of former President Donald Trump in December of 2019, but before the events around the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, and the subsequent second impeachment of Trump. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Kathy Bratkowski. Jill Wine-Banks, thank you so much for being with us here today to talk about your book, The Watergate Girl. Thank you, Kathy. I am very delighted to be here. So your book... I'm curious about so many things about it and your life story. This is a memoir of your time as a member of the special prosecutors team during Watergate. I'm curious, when did you decide to write this book? Was it in the works before the past few years events? Yes. And it's actually a sort of a longer answer than you might expect. I was encouraged to write this book right after Watergate. A book agent had placed an article for me in Red Book magazine, which still exists and encouraged me to expand it into a book. And I was, I'm just too busy with my career. I don't have time. I'm not doing it. But it was also at that time because I thought I didn't have the perspective that I would need to add some value to the conversation. And because I was insecure enough that I thought I didn't have anything really meaningful to say. But then in 2008, I theoretically retired. I flew to Italy to be with very good friends. And they said, okay, you've not written this book that we've been encouraging you to write for many years. Now you have time, you should write it. 
So in 2008, I started drafting an outline for the book and made a sort of effort. I went back to the book agent who had encouraged me in 1976, um, who was semi-retired by then, and I didn't make the right effort. But then came 2017, and I got really serious. I had written a substantial amount before that, and I actually had gotten an agent, but it didn't sell. And then in 2017, I thought, I now am on MSNBC, and I have an audience. I had, at the time I first started writing then, I had maybe 40,000 followers on Twitter. I now have almost a half million. So I had an audience, and publishers then were like, oh, yeah, maybe that this would be good. So I got really serious writing in about 2018, I would say. And the book came out this year, just before COVID. Uh, so I had a few stops on my book tour before we went to Zoom as the means of communication. Yeah, it's an interesting year to have a book tour, isn't it? Yeah. And the 2017 was significant because I went back to writing just about the time that Donald Trump was elected. And I was accepted to a program at Ragdale, which is an arts community in the Illinois area. And one of the writers that I got to know there named Rita Dragonette called me after we returned from Ragdale and said, I just read about a course in how to write an op-ed. And I bet you have something to say. So I signed up for the course. It was an all-day Sunday. And it was Sunday before the Tuesday that Comey was fired. So I finished this one-day course on Sunday. On Tuesday, I had something to say about a topic in the news. I wrote an op-ed. It was published on Friday. And on Friday, I started getting calls from every network saying, we'd love you to be on to talk about uh, what you just wrote. And that eventually led to my contract with MSNBC. So it's been quite a, a, a ride. And as you know from my book, I graduated college with a degree in journalism and wanted to be a journalist, but went to law school in order to get a good job on a newspaper where I could cover either law or politics um, because of sexism back when I graduated in 1964. Um, girls, as we were called, which also explains the title of my book, Watergate Girl, um, girls were offered jobs on what was called the woman's page. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do hardcore news. So law school was not intended to make me a lawyer. It was intended to make me a reporter. And it did, but it took about 50 years. Well, and in the meantime, you did quite a few interesting <laughs> things and had a great career at many things. So congratulations on kind of coming full circle to what you wanted to do at the beginning. The book really, for those who haven't read it yet, it chronicles in a lot of detail this insider's view of the impeachment and prosecution and the investigation into erase tapes and missing tapes and so on at the highest levels of government and also deceit of the public by officials at the highest level of government. In your book, you talk about interviewing Rosemary Woods, then President Nixon's secretary, who was transcribing a lot of the content off of the tapes, correct? Yes. It's interesting that you were paired with the woman, you know, witness, but uh, you speak even sort of fondly of her. It was a, can just tell us a little bit about that. That was some great moments in your memoir. Let me start by saying 
to call her a secretary is really not accurate. She was Richard Nixon's secretary. That was her title at first. She became um, eventually a, a personal assistant. But throughout the period, she was a advisor to him. She really was someone he relied on for political and substantive advice. She was a very close member of his family. She traded clothes with his wife, Pat. She was called aunt by his two daughters. And so it's not fair um, to say secretary, which nowadays has a different meaning than it did then. Back then, a secretary was someone who took dictation and transcribed it. But she did much more than that. And I learned even more about her as I was writing the book and research. And for example, listened to tape recordings of her conversations with Richard Nixon, not part of the tapes we subpoenaed, but just conversations. And you could hear how much he relies on her. So th that's the first thing. But in order to understand her pivotal role in this case, um, there are two things to understand. One is that I was not assigned to her because we were both women. It happened because I spoke up. When the tapes were subpoenaed, to make sure your audience understands, I'll give a little background. We started work as Watergate Special Prosecutors in May of 73, uh, less than a year after the burglary was called the Watergate break-in. And in July, so shortly after that, one of the White House witnesses called before the Senate testified that there were tape recordings of all the conversations. By then, we had already talked to John Dean and knew about a number of very incriminating conversations that he had had with the president and others that we suspected from his calendar entries would be very criminally involved. So we immediately subpoenaed, we selected nine tapes and we asked for those nine that we felt we could overcome any legitimate claim of executive privilege by explaining that these were for criminal purposes. The president decided that he was going to stonewall us. He said, nope, you can't have them. We got a court order. He said, I don't care. I'm not giving them to you. We went further to another court, still wouldn't give them to us. And we had a press conference on Saturday, October 20th. So we're still, you know, pretty early on in the process. And Archibald Cox, who was the special prosecutor, explained to the American people why we needed the tapes and why we had a right to them. And Richard Nixon, instead of being moved by that, as was the American public, who started protesting his stonewalling, he said, no, not doing it. And the pressure of the public became so intense that he three days later said, okay, I'll give you them and I will appoint a new special prosecutor because by then he had fired Archibald Cox and his attorney general and his deputy attorney general and had abolished our office. He did that all immediately. Three days later, he undid it because of public pressure, which I want to point out is a significant thing that America needs to keep in mind right now as we are in a very fraught time, public pressure politicians respond to. Anyway, so then he said, we'll give you the tapes. That was October 23rd. Then at the end of the month on Halloween, he said, whoops, there are two 
that don't exist. I can't give them to you. I can explain one was from the White House residence, and that's not on the taping system. The other, there was a malfunction. The machine that tapes didn't back up to the second tape. It ran out of tape, and the second tape didn't start. We had a hearing about that. It ended, and a few weeks later, on the day before Thanksgiving, on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving, so I think it was November 20-something, he said, uh, come back to court. There's a third tape, and it has an 18-and-a-half-minute gap. Okay, so during the first hearing, Richard Benvenista and I were the only two lawyers doing the questioning of White House witnesses about these missing tapes. And after a, a day or so of the hearings, I said, Rick, you're taking too many witnesses. I'm going to take the next witness the White House calls, and I'm going to take every other witness after that we're sharing equally. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. But if I hadn't spoken up, that wouldn't have happened. I guarantee it. And the next witness called was Rosemary Woods. During that first hearing about the two missing tapes, she was what was known as a chain of custody witness, just saying, yes, I touched them. I handled them. She wasn't the prime suspect in criminal erasure of evidence. But when they called us back the day before Thanksgiving, they said, there's an 18 and a half minute hum where there should be conversation and we can find no innocent explanation. The only person who you can ask about this is Rosemary Woods. Since she was my witness in the first hearing, she was my witness in the second. I had to violate the rules of every lawyer in cross-examination. Never ask a question you don't know the answer to because all I knew was that the White House said, you'll have to ask her how it happened. And so I didn't know what she was going to say, but I had to say, okay, tell us what you did. Her explanation, and I want everyone to envision a witness box. She's sitting there, there's a wooden ledge, and her machine that she had listened to the tapes on is a, what's known as a reel-to-reel tape. It had those, you know, if anybody's seen an old-fashioned movie reel that revolves, there were you know, there'd be two reels, one would have tape on it, and it would play and go on to the other reel until it ran out. And she said, I was listening to this particular tape, and the telephone rang. And I said, well, where was the phone? And she described that it was at the far end of her desk. And she said, so I reached for the phone. And instead of turning off the machine by pressing stop, I accidentally hit record. By the way, a button on the machine that's a completely different color than all the others so that it would be a big warning that you're pressing something different. She said, I hit the record button, I reached for the phone, and I kept my foot on the pedal under the desk because otherwise it wouldn't keep rotating and therefore there'd be no erasure. Now, that sounded incredible to me. So I said, could you demonstrate exactly what you did? And in the courtroom, she sort of pointed toward the machine And just pointing before she even reached, her foot came off the pedal and you could see the tape machine stop. The press ran from the room to call in the story because back then there were no cell phones. So there were banks of pay phones uh, for people who still remember those to call in the story. And she muttered, well, it's different in my office. I could do it there. And so I said, well, Your Honor, maybe we should adjourn to her office and she could demonstrate there. And that led to 
the picture of the stretch, which I've sent to you. you, you have a copy of the evidence photograph that was taken in the White House, where she was able to manage to accomplish reaching the phone. But it was the front page of every newspaper and magazine, and it became fodder for many cartoons. Everyone looking at it knew the way she was holding on to her chair, white knuckled and reaching. She could not have stayed in that position for 18 and a half minutes. No one would. If you're on a wheelchair, you would have taken your foot off the pedal and pushed yourself to the telephone. So the picture proved in ways that words couldn't, that she was lying, that she had not done what she did. Further scientific analysis showed that the tape had been erased, not in one fell swoop. It had been erased eight, approximately eight times. An erasure, a stop, listen, erase more, listen, erase more. And so we know that it didn't happen the way she said. And that became one of the turning points in Watergate. It became a time when the public went, we can see that the White House is lying. We can see they can't be trusted. And it really changed public perception. So it was a very significant moment. Did the photo and your questioning of Rosemary Woods and what the outcome was of that, did that prove to people that you do you think that Richard Nixon erased the tape or was it just? It, it, no, you know, it's interesting. To this day, we don't have a definitive answer. We know that it was not an accidental erasure. We know it was deliberate. We know that the erasure started and stopped exactly when the conversation was Watergate. And the reason we know that is that the conversation was between the president and Haldeman, who was his chief of staff. And Haldeman was a prolific note taker, and we subpoenaed his notes. And his notes, you can follow on the tape. They're talking about Ely, Nevada. And all of a sudden, the buzz starts as soon as that conversation ends. And the next thing in his notes is Watergate, PR effort. So we know it started exactly when the conversation, and then you see his notes about Watergate, and then you see the next subject, and that's when the buzz stops. So it was clearly not an accident that it got deleted exactly for the Watergate part. I have a theory, but there is no proof of who actually did it. Um, It seems likely to me that Richard Nixon was involved, that it was the first tape on our subpoena. And so if before you were going to turn them over, you wanted to listen, which we know he did because we have tapes of him listening to the tapes, that if you wanted to hear it, you would play that one first because it's first on the subpoena. And he must have listened and gone, oh, that sounds bad. I'll erase it. Then he listens some more and he erases more. And then it's all done. And he goes on to the second tape. And then he goes, oh, this is bad too. I can't erase all of them. I'm just going to adopt a stonewall attitude. I'm going to refuse to give any tapes to the prosecutors. That's the way I will handle this. And so that's why that one is erased and no others are. Now, there is a question of why he didn't destroy them. Many people urged him to. As soon as Alexander Butterfield testified they existed, if he had erased them, they wouldn't have been destroying evidence. It would have looked bad. It would have hurt politically, but it wouldn't have been criminal. We got the subpoena to him within a week, and he didn't do it by then, and then it became criminal. If he destroyed them, it would have been a criminal obstruction. 
plain and simple, too obvious. So that's why it didn't happen. If we had taken longer to do it, I think he probably would have listened to all those who were advising him to erase them. Now, why he blamed Rosemary is I think she actually, when she came to the erasure, she thought she had done it for some reason. She ran into his office to tell him, and I think he saw an opportunity to cover his tracks. And if it wasn't him, he knew who did it, and he knew it wasn't her. And after her loyalty to him for so many years, I'm appalled that he would have turned on her and let her take the blame and live the rest of her life in somewhat of humiliation. Coming up, our guest Jill Winebanks will talk about what it's been like being a groundbreaker throughout her career. I think opening doors for other women is part of the burden of being the first. It made me insecure because I was treated as an outsider and as different. You know, if you're the older sister, you have to do certain things in order to enable your younger sibling to get the same privileges. And if you mess it up, they're not going to get them. And when I became general counsel of the Army, one of the things I'm proud of is that my successor was a woman. I didn't mess up and they didn't say a woman can't do this job. We'll never hire another woman. I'm very happy to have done that. We'll hear more about the sexism she's encountered, a comparison between Nixon and Trump, and a summary of her diverse post-Watergate career when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Your subtitle to your book is My Fight for Justice Against a Criminal President. Obviously, so much of this resonates with some of the events that have happened recently in the Trump administration. And what is your opinion of how the Trump impeachment went versus the Nixon impeachment and where we are today in holding officials accountable for actions? Oh, it's very different today, obviously. Um, My fight for justice during Watergate worked. We had justice. Democracy worked. There was bipartisanship. There was agreement on what the facts were. Today, we live in bubbles. We do not agree on the facts. Those of us who listen to MSNBC believe one set of information, and those who listen to Fox believe a completely different set of of things they are told. Because I don't accept the facts as presented by anybody, I look at the underlying documents, for example. I know that what I hear on MSNBC is based on those underlying documents, and they are true. I know that what is being said on Fox is not. And that makes a big difference in public opinion, on support continuing for President Trump, despite what I believe are clear sets of evidence of criminal activity. So it's very different, the outcome of the case. During Watergate, the impeachment, which is done by the, there there were two things involved in Watergate. There was a Senate hearing under Sam Irvin that was looking at what kind of legislation might be needed to protect against the kind of conduct that was going on. It wasn't a criminal investigation, and it wasn't an impeachment. It was just really legislative. And it led to campaign reforms, for example, that 
make a difference, uh, although they have been undone by a very terrible Supreme Court case called Citizens United. Uh, much of the campaign finance reforms were undone. And campaign money is what paid for the original Watergate break-in. If there hadn't been so much secret money available, no campaign would have wasted money on something that had no guaranteed outcome, something that was really, I mean, was obviously criminal to break in, but was also not likely to result in a clear political advantage. So that's one of the big differences, I would say. Um, in Watergate, there was bipartisan agreement on the articles of impeachment, and it was Republicans who went to Richard Nixon after three articles had been passed. There would have been more, but after three, they went to him because by that point, we had prevailed in the Supreme Court and a tape known as the smoking gun tape had become public that we had gotten because the Supreme Court upheld our right to have the tapes. And in that tape, you could hear Richard Nixon say, well, let's use the CIA to stop the FBI. I don't want them following the chain of money and we, we can do this. You also hear conversations where he says, yes, I know where we can get a million dollars to pay off the burglars to keep them quiet. And at that point, the Republicans said, these are facts. They went to the White House, the three top Republicans, and said, President Nixon, if you do not resign, you will be convicted in the Senate. And the next day, he announced his resignation. And the day after that, he flew away from the White House. So, and going back to Rosemary Woods for a second, after that conversation with the three top Republicans, this was the leader of the House and Senate and Barry Goldwater, who had been the presidential candidate before that. He went to Rosemary Woods and said, I'm resigning. You have to tell my wife and daughters. He didn't have the, I don't know what the right word is. He didn't want to tell them. He wanted her and she is the one who actually told them that he was resigning. So again, that shows the importance of her role in his life and career and his family. When you wrote your memoir, did you write a lot of this from memory or did you have to go back and research a lot? Because it's so detailed. You must have a wonderful memory. Well, probably not as good as John Dean, who has an incredible memory. He was a fabulous witness for that reason. I did write the first draft completely from memory. And then I started doing research. So, for example, um, if we look at the picture of the Rosemary Stretch, I had described everything, including the dress that she was wearing, which I remembered vividly because it was a very colorful dress. And I just, I remembered it, but I wanted to make sure that I was accurate. So I pulled up online a picture of the Rosemary stretch and I had actually forgotten one of the colors. I said it was orange and turquoise. It was actually orange, turquoise and chartreuse, which is very clear in the picture. Um, another thing in the picture that I didn't remember and only noticed shortly before the book was published in studying the picture, she was wearing a pin, which because I've become so known for my pins is very ironic to me. But if you look closely at that picture, you will see she has a pin on. And um, I also called many of my colleagues to make sure that they remembered things the same way I did. and made corrections where there were 
things that they remember differently, sometimes saying, you know, this is his memory, this is my memory. Of course, before the book is published, there are fact checkers involved. And my fact checker, uh, Jack Cassidy, was like amazing and would look up things that I wouldn't even think that you could check. But he found some of the most amazing quotes in newspapers. So everything is completely accurate in there. But it was, I would say, largely my memory was correct um, as to all of the really significant details. And it's surprising how much you do remember this was a very, very major thing. The hard part for me was what stories do I include and what stories don't I include? I had a fabulous editor, Paul Golub at Holt, who really gave me basically two rules. He said, it goes in if it relates to obstacles you overcame and if it's a unique viewpoint that you have about the Watergate case. So it was quite a time to be a young prosecutor and you were only 30 and you were the only woman on this team. What was that like? It was exactly like anyone who grew up in that era would expect. And I hope it will remind people today not only what it was like, but to make them aware that we've made progress, but we have not come to equality. I was the only woman, and that's because at the time that we're talking about, only 4% of all lawyers were women. And of that 4%, almost none were trial lawyers. Women tended into other areas of legal practice. So it isn't surprising that I was the only woman on the trial team. And it isn't surprising that men didn't always know how to treat me and that there was a lot of sexism, not only in the courtroom, but, you know, if we can go back, uh, let me just say in writing the book, I came to realize how much sexism and sex discrimination influenced my life. I did not really realize it until, remember I said I started writing an outline. And so I was putting down, you know, what are the stories that I would want to share with people? You know, what what should my friends know? Um, And therefore, also the readers, because I wrote this book as if I was talking to friends, being totally candid, sharing a lot of personal things, which, by the way, many of my Watergate colleagues tried to dissuade me from doing, but I felt it was very much a part of the story. So um, I realized when I looked at the list of stories, that most of them involved some form of sexist treatment I got, whether it was Judge Sirica interrupting questioning with what anyone would consider a sexist remark, whether it was one of the key witnesses in the case, Jeb Magruder, when he first met me, looking at me when someone offered coffee, not me offering coffee, but one of the men in the room offered coffee, and he turned to me to say, I'll take mine black assuming that I was a secretary and would, that was my job. That's why I was there. Whether it was questions I was asked in job interviews about what kind of birth control do you use? How many children do you plan to have? Whether it was my fellow classmates saying, what are you doing here? You're taking the place of someone who will be drafted to Vietnam and die there because you took their rightful place. Those were realities back then. So it made women, uh, it made me, I'm not going to say all women, but it made me insecure because I was treated as an outsider and as different. And it did make women have to be 
better than men to get half as much recognition. And I have some clues in my book about how did I overcome those obstacles and possibly will help other people overcome any obstacles in their path. It's sort of, you know, for any of your listeners who are older children, you know, if you're the older sister, you have to do certain things in order to enable your younger sibling to get the same privileges. And if you mess it up, they're not going to get them. And I often felt that way. Um, When I became general counsel of the army, my proudest, well, I have a lot of wonderful accomplishments there that I'm probably prouder of than anything in my career. But one of the things I'm proud of is that my successor was a woman. I didn't mess up and they didn't say a woman can't do this job. We'll never hire another woman. So I I think opening doors for other women is part of the burden of being the first. And I'm very happy to have done that. Um, In the Pentagon, one of the things I worked on was abolishing the Women's Army Corps, the WACs. And you might say, well, why would you want to do that? And the reason is that if you look at how many generals the Women's Army Corps had, the answer is two. If you look at how many the regular army had, it's hundreds. And so if you want women to advance to be generals, they have to be part of the regular army, not the woman's army. And I saw the consequences of that when I was on a Pentagon commission recently studying sexual assault in the military. And one of the panels coming in to testify before the commission was a group of five generals and one admiral. And the lowest ranking person was a brigadier general, which is a one star. And the one star was the only man on the panel. So every other person on that panel outranked him and was female. And that, it brought tears to my eyes to think that that only could have happened by abolishing the Women's Army Corps. That had to make you feel good. And you, you really were a pioneer for so many women who came after, I mean, in, in the legal profession or, and this is right after Watergate, you went on to become the uh, a general counsel for the army, correct? Yes, that- yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I was in private practice for yeah. um, right after Watergate and then did that um, before moving back to Chicago to marry my high school boyfriend, <laughs> who is now my husband of 40 years. So. See- yeah, you talk about some of that in the book as well, about, you know, how your personal life transitioned after Watergate, and you kind of have lived a couple of lives here. Why don't you just, at this point, tell us about your career, because you had so many interesting high-power jobs. Well, what's part, part of what I want people to know is that, obviously, I have reinvented myself because I've been a prosecutor, I've been a defense lawyer, I've also been a business person, and I've done that in both um, the not-for-profit world and the for-profit world. And I love the reinventions. It's, it's offered me so many wonderful opportunities. Um, but I've taken a lot of risks. And women tend to think that unless they have 100% of the qualifications, they can't take on a job. They won't even apply for it. Men think if they have one out of 10, it's enough and they're qualified. Um, I try not to think about things like that because a lot of the 
challenges I've taken on, I probably wouldn't have done if I really analyzed it. I probably wouldn't have started law school if I had known the challenge I was taking on. But I am sure glad that I did. So I went from private practice to be general counsel of the Army, then moved to Chicago. So um, I went back to private practice. I was a partner in a big law firm in Chicago. And then I was offered a job as the Solicitor General of Illinois. And I um, thought, well, no, I mean, I'm doing fine here. But it was such a great challenge. The Attorney General got me to write the job description for the Solicitor General because we didn't have one in Illinois. And after I wrote the job description, um, I thought, oh, this is this is a really good job. And so I decided that I would do that. And so I went back to public service and that was fabulous, but it also allowed me to manage. Um, I ended up being the deputy attorney general, which meant I had some responsibility for supervising the full legal staff of the attorney general's office. Uh, and actually as the general counsel, I had over 3000 lawyers uh, under my jurisdiction, the Judge Advocate General Corps, the Corps of Engineers, and the procurement branch of the Army, uh, their lawyers. So I had some management experience, but doing it a second time, I realized I kind of, I liked management. Um, and so when I was offered the job of the uh, Chief Operating Officer for the American Bar Association, which combined, of course, law and administration, I took that job. And then I realized I really liked running a operational thing and decided that I was going to look for a job in business and um, had to reinvent myself for uh, anybody to interview me. People kept offering me jobs as the general counsel of their company. No, I want to be on the business side. And I finally um, was introduced through networking, which is a theme uh, that comes up in my book a lot. I think networking is one of the most valuable skills a person can develop. And one of my dearest friends introduced me to the CEO of Motorola, and he was high enough up that he could say, well, your background is legal, but I can see how you could end up in an operational role and actually gave me the job of a lifetime. I couldn't believe how exciting it was to add economic value in litigation, particularly private litigation. You're transferring money from one client to another. And it, they're both rich or they couldn't have afforded us. And so you're not really adding anything new. But with Motorola, I was creating real opportunities, not just for Motorola, but by bringing a phone system to, for example, my first assignment was Pakistan, where landline system was very uh, iffy, not reliable. How do you order goods for your business if you don't have a telephone? How do you accept orders for products that you have if you don't have a telephone. So it was really helping the economy of Pakistan to add a cellular system. And I loved it. It was, it was fabulous. And I loved the people I worked with. So it was a good change for me. It was completely terrific. So I've done a lot of changing. Um, I then moved to Maytag in Newton, Iowa. That didn't work out for me as well. Um, I would say being in Newton, Iowa was not a good fit for me, and but I was still doing international business development, and I loved that. I worked mostly in Japan um, during that period of time and loved that experience. It was wonderful. 
when I left Maytag, I helped start up a not-for-profit called Winning Workplaces that helps small and mid-sized businesses to be better workplaces, to have better HR policies in order to be more profitable and just because it's the right thing to do and got recruited from there to be the head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools, which, uh, again, when we talk about things I'm really happy with, one of the things I did there was to create something called DeVry Advantage Academy, which is a high school that is a, it's a regular public high school, but the students graduate with an associate degree as well as a diploma at the same time in four years, they get both. Um, they have an associate degree in network system administration, which allows them to get immediate jobs at very high salaries. But the best news is most of them understand, oh, I just finished two years of college. I could actually graduate. And most of the students went on to become full uh, bachelor's degree holders. So that was that's a pretty exciting and wonderful thing to have done. And it was when I left CPS, the Chicago Public Schools, and flew to Italy that my new career uh, as a writer started. Uh, but it, it took, uh, you know, from 2008 when I left uh, CPS until 2020 to actually finish the book and have it published. Will you be writing another book? Um, well, there's two possible things that I might do. One is I've been encouraged to write a book about my pins, and they do tell the story of the Trump administration because I've always tried to wear pins on MSNBC that relate to the story of the day. And uh, so it would be easy to have that converted, and I am thinking about it. And one of my Twitter followers sent me the best title for that book. I'm not going to share it because if I write it, I want it to be a surprise. Um, I also have learned more information. You mentioned that I had portrayed Rosemary Woods sympathetically. And I did because as I got to know her through the few days that we were together, but more in following her life after that and in doing research for the book, I really did feel sympathy for her and how she had been treated. And I tried to interview people who knew her as a friend or family member, but they all thought I was an enemy, that I had gone out to embarrass her, which I didn't. A prosecutor is someone who wants the truth. We want the facts. And that's all I did. If she was embarrassed, it's because of how she testified. I didn't put those words in her mouth. She put them in her mouth. Um, but I was frustrated in not being able to get the kind of information I wanted. And I said something like that on Fresh Air on NPR. And almost immediately, her grandnephew called me and said that he would be happy to talk to me. And I've had a wonderful conversation with him. And I've learned a lot more about Rose. So maybe I would write an article um, about Rose and her role in this. And some of the things that I've learned about her as a human being that I find interesting and different than I would have expected uh, to know about her. Um, so those are two things. There's also a possibility of filling out, I mean, my, my memoir, The Watergate Girl, really covers the period of time from May of 73 when I was hired to January of 75 when the verdict of guilty came in in the Watergate conspiracy case. It has a 
brief chapter and an epilogue that deal with everything after 1975. Um, you know, if you can imagine, you know, there's a whole book about a year and a little over a year and a half, maybe. And then there's one chapter that deals with the next 40 years. Um, so there's a lot more to tell in that story. And, you know, maybe someday, but right now I'm, I'm very happy with where I am in this and the paperback edition is coming out in March. And so I'll stick with Watergate Girl for a, a little while. Well, it's a fascinating book. It really is. Thank you so much, Jill Weinbanks, for being with us to talk about your fascinating book, The Watergate Girl. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye, Kathy. Bye-bye. That was our guest, lawyer and author, Jill Weinbanks. We spoke with her via Zoom in November of 2020 about her newest book, The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President by publisher Henry Holt and Company. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Kathy Bratkowski. Video editor was Peter Foggy. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the Jewish Book Festival. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.